listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. So last Sunday, Rachel was preaching on the parables of the missing sheep and the missing coin, I found myself thinking, ah, yes, the next one in the series of parable is the parable of the prodigal son, which I get next Sunday. Yippee! And on my way home that night, I was already beginning to write the sermon in my mind, deciding that I might quite likely draw on Father Killian McDonald's poetry cycle on the parable, cycle of poems we used some years back. I was, of course, completely overlooking the fact that the lectionary always places the parable of the prodigal son in Lent during the year that we read primarily from Luke and completely forgetting that I had preached on it in March. <laughs> but you know, hopefulness is an occupational hazard for the clergy. So I somehow maintained in that zone until Monday morning, and I'm preparing the weekly email news, and I went to put in the readings, and I went, oh. (laughs) Robert Ferrer Capon calls this the hardest parable. And with lines like, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, it's hard to argue with them. Yet, one of the keys here is to consider to whom Jesus is telling this parable, the disciples, and what they in their social and cultural context would have heard that we don't necessarily hear. First of all, consider the line, there was a rich man who had a manager. A rich man, they would have heard, meant someone propertied in a position of power and privilege. And a manager or a steward they would have heard as being quite possibly a slave or an indentured servant. But even if a freed person, a manager would be in nothing like a management position in our world. Right away, the sympathies of the disciples who were themselves common folk would have bent toward that steward, even if they assumed the steward maybe had been playing a bit fast and loose with the rich man's property. And when that steward received the news that he'd been fired, his reflections would have resonated with those disciples. What will I do, the steward says to himself, Now that my master is taking the position away from me, I am not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. Where will I go? Where will I live? i got to hatch a plan. The disciples would have been, oh yeah, absolutely, you do. Riches were very complicated in first century Judea. How you attained and then increased wealth, particularly so. Under the Torah, Jews were prohibited from collecting interest on loans or on debts. 
This prohibition was in place to limit the rich from getting richer and the poor poorer. The prohibition against charging interest was meant to to level the playing field at least somewhat, as were the various laws around how you harvested and how far to the edge of your property. All the laws about debt forgiveness all meant to kind of keep the playing field somewhat level. But there was a common dodge around the letter of the law such that when goods were forwarded on credit, then a kind of interest was snuck in. For example, if I were to forward you 50 liters of olive oil on credit, you might be expected to repay me 60 or 70 liters because I'm not charging you interest on a financial debt. I keep within the letter of the law That I'm completely violating the spirit of the law is a whole other question, of course, but I'm still quite confident that I can hold my head high when I walk through the doors of the synagogue. So, yeah, a dodge. The disciples would have known all of this. And so when they heard the parable and heard about the steward hatching his plan, they would have been nodding their heads summoning his master's debtors one by one. The steward asked the first, How much do you owe my master? And he answered, A hundred jugs of oil. The steward said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it fifty. Then he asked another, How much do you owe? And he replied, A hundred containers of wheat. The steward said to him, Take your bill and make it eighty. Now, recognize, it's not talking about money here. It's talking about goods. What's likely happening is that the steward is lopping off that hiked-up effective interest and reducing the amount owed to what was actually borrowed on credit. You see that? It isn't money. It's goods, wheat, and oil. Now, the steward's goal in this, incidentally, is not to get his job back with the rich man. He's pretty sure he's lost that. But rather to ensure that, quote, when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. He's trying to make friends. Funny thing, though, is the rich man's response, which is precisely where the parable begins to sound a bit bizarre. And even to the disciples' ears, it would have probably followed to this point, and then a crick goes in their necks. His master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly, Jesus says. Here Robert Capon comments, somehow between verse 2, what's this? You're fired! And verse 8, My beamish boy, you're a genius. I never thought I'd see even a nickel from those accounts. Somehow between those verses, the master of the steward has turned from an unforgiving bookkeeper to a happy-go-lucky celebrator of anything that comes along his way. But the strangeness of the parable deepens even more when Jesus goes on to say, The children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation 
than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it's gone, they may welcome you into eternal homes or alternately homes that last. So what? Jesus is encouraging his followers, the disciples, the children of light, to pick up on some of the canny practices of people like the steward. I mean, for all that the disciples might have sympathized with that steward, Jesus still does call him dishonest. So what do we do with that? Barbara Rossing admits that, quote, the idea of using unrighteous mammon to achieve everlasting dwellings is hard to fathom. Unless, perhaps, the idea may, may be to use the master's tools, unrighteous mammon, to dismantle the master's house, the unjust debt structures. That's interesting. The Lutheran theologian Lois Malcolm further proposes that what Jesus was pressing the disciples to consider was that instead of using dishonest wealth to exploit others, as the rich man does, disciples are to use wealth to make friends for themselves. If friendships are based on reciprocal and egalitarian relationships, then releasing other people's debts not only enriches them, but also establishes a new kind of reciprocity with them. That's also helpful. Still, the dishonest steward is not the most exemplary of characters. Then again, Jesus is not shy of sometimes using dodgy characters to make his point, right? I mean, the, the unjust judge as a, as, a, as a figure for how you persist in prayer. Jesus is telling parables. He's not writing moral code. So he's not afraid of those colorful characters. Yet I don't think for a minute that Jesus was calling his disciples, his people, to simply succumb to the ways of their world, economic or otherwise. That becomes clear from the way that Luke arranges these teachings. No sooner has the parable made its funny point of making friends with money than we hit that series of almost proverb-like teachings which culminate in this. No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Or if you grew up on the King James Version, as I did, you cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is a more loaded word, pointing to the spiritual nature of money and wealth when it begins to dominate our imaginations as being the desirable thing. Martin Luther addressed this 500 years ago, but he could have just as well been writing last week or 
speaking these words in the early Christian house churches in places like Corinth or Philippi 2,000 years ago. Listen to the timelessness of Luther's words for giving him his dominantly masculine pronouns. Luther writes, Many a person thinks he has God and everything he needs when he has money and property. In them he trusts, and of them he boasts so stubbornly and securely that he cares for no one. Surely such a man also has a god, mammon by name, that is, money and possessions, on which he fixes his whole heart. It is the most common idol on earth. And it was in Luther's time, and it is in ours, the most common idol on earth. Perhaps part of what Jesus wants is that we not be naive about that truth. That rather than constantly trying to secure our bank accounts and portfolios, we should lean hard toward friendship, relationship with others, forgiving debts, living from a posture of generosity, maybe privately passing along a gift of money to help alleviate someone else's financial burden, as I know several people here have quietly done. Well, that's some of my wrestling with this hardest of parables from the past week. You may well find yourself thinking that this doesn't quite resolve the stickiness of it all, and that's just fine. As I rather like the fact that Jesus, Rabbi Jesus, could craft stories that get us wrestling and wondering and scratching our heads two millennia later. It keeps us limber, after all, and maybe a bit humble to know that in this faith of ours, there is always more truth to be sought, more insight to be gleaned from these moving and evocative and challenging stories. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.